having sung of our Messiah, of, of the Savior, in the words as they were put to music by the psalmist already so many centuries before he came. Today we will continue to read about that Savior and we'll be continuing our sermon series going through the Gospel of Luke. But to be able to give a little bit of context to this passage, we'll be reading together first from 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 17, and we'll be reading the verses 17 to 24. This is a passage that comes out of the life of one of the prophets of Israel's history, and his name was Elijah. He served under the reign of Ahab at this point in time, who was a very wicked king, and yet the Lord still used Elijah powerfully. We come to 1 Kings 17, verse 17. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What have I done with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the, supper, from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. Then this woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. This would have been a passage that's in the background of the minds of many of the people of Israel as they come to the passage that we'll be looking at as our text today in Luke chapter 7. Now we'll begin with reading Luke chapter 7, the verses 1 to 10, and this gives us a parallel to compare the text that we'll be looking at today, verses 11 to 17, and we will be able to understand a little bit more of what Jesus is teaching here. So Jesus has just finished preaching. He's uh, preached the Sermon on the Plain, and he has encouraged his people who call him Lord, Lord, not just to listen to him, but also to do the things he says, to rely on his authority, to respond to his authority. And that's where the first part of this passage comes in, chapter 7, verse 1. Now when he, that is Jesus, concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. 
And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built for us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well, who had been sick. And now we come to our text for today. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and a large crowd. And when he came near to the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. So far, the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Have you ever been in a situation in which you said something that was terribly out of place? Say it's a really somber moment and maybe you find yourself laughing at something that somebody else says. It feels especially awkward because it feels so wrong, doesn't it? When sudden joy meets up with seriousness, the laughter almost sounds like it's flippant, even when it's not meant to be taken that way. And that's almost the feeling that we get when we enter into our passage today. There's a crowd that's been following along with Jesus Christ. They are celebrating, they are speaking together, they are laughing, and they are having an all-around good time. And why wouldn't they? They've been traveling around with Jesus. And they've been able to see and experience some amazing miracles along the way. In fact, they just recently were able to see the miracle of Jesus healing somebody at a distance, not even being in their presence, not even needing to lay hands on them. He just spoke and it happened. Jesus is busy traveling from one place to another right now. And this crowd that's surrounding him, this crowd that's spending time with him, isn't 
listening to what he has to say. They aren't listening to him preach. They are simply following along in his wake as he walks. The mood, as you can imagine, would have been joyful. It would have been genuinely festive. As they're traveling around, they now come to a little town called Nain. It's a small city that's about 14 kilometers southeast of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth and about 40 kilometers away from his previous location in Capernaum at the beginning of chapter 7. So about a solid day's walk from where he healed the centurion's servant. As this joyful group of people traveling together comes to this small city, they're met by another group, and this one a more somber group. They're met by a funeral procession. And this is a really sad moment. Jesus looks, and ahead of the procession, he sees a woman who is grieving deeply, The young man who's being carried on the open coffin is the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Some of you today have been able to already experience the absence of those that you love because of this virus. I recently heard someone speak to me about how he wasn't able to hold his grandchildren because they were in isolation because they had just come back from traveling. We can already feel an absence there. We can feel an absence as well as, as we look at the empty pews here today and we, we can feel the, the hole that's left behind there. This hole that's already left behind in in some small way. And the fact that that already has such an impact on us should give us a, a small measure of the feeling of what this woman was experiencing. She, from her perspective, would never be able to hold her son again. This was the end of it for her in this life. And she was grieving. Now you have to understand how how significant this death was for her in the ancient world. They didn't have social assistance safety nets like we have here. They didn't have the government stepping in to provide funds. They didn't have life insurance that stepped in to support someone after their spouse dies. They didn't have any of these kinds of things. In the ancient world, if the husband died, the breadwinner of the family died, then the task for providing for the family would fall to the oldest son. He would step up and take his place as provider for the home. But here we see a woman who is not only a widow, she has lost her one and only son. She has had everything taken away from her. She has nothing left. 
and the crowds that are traveling with her on the way out, they recognize them. They recognize this. They, they see this. It would have been the evening of the day because this was the time when the funeral processions would normally take place, culturally speaking. The sun is going down and they are all busy gathered together and grieving along with her. And this would have been an enormous noise rising up. Middle Eastern funerals were not and are not quiet affairs. You'd cry out loudly to express your grief. And you can see here how the whole village would have turned out to support her. There was a large crowd that was traveling with her. They would have been crying out even more loudly in order to express the depth of her loss, knowing that she had nothing left anymore. And so you can just imagine the clash of sounds that is rising up to heaven. On the one hand, you have the joy and the laughter that would have accompanied the crowds that were following Jesus. And then on the other hand, you would have had the wails and the cries going up. Here you have the crowds who are with the Lord of life coming to meet the procession of those who are suffering under the burden and gloom of death. What a noise would have risen up to heaven. And as these two processions meet, the Lord saw her. And, as our passage says, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And this brings us to our theme for today. Do not weep. Your Savior has come. We'll see, first of all, how authority meets compassion Second, how compassion meets sin's curse. And finally, how the curse of sin is lifted as a relationship is restored. Now, a few weeks ago, if you remember how we preached on the first part of this passage, chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, or even if you are just tuning in for the first time today, you are visiting with us through live stream. You may remember that we just read these first few verses. And you can see the stark difference in the way that the Lord approached this woman and the way that he approached the centurion earlier in this chapter. The difference in this message shows us just another facet of the gem of response to Christ's ministry. When Jesus met the centurion, you had one who had power and one who was under authority coming to the one who was, who embodied power and authority. You had the centurion, the man of prominence, a Gentile, yes, but still a man of prominence coming humbly to Jesus, the Lord of life. And you could see Christ receiving him in a way that showed he knew the breadth of his own authority and that he acknowledged, he accepted this man's humility as he came to him. There's a saying in this world that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And though this is a somewhat cynical saying, it's come to show some measure of truth in this world because people who have unrestrained authority what often do end up becoming 
corrupted and using it in terrible ways. But here we see Jesus who has the ultimate authority and who has just expressed that to the Roman centurion in a passage leading up to this, the meeting with this grieving woman by commanding this world to bend the knee before the coming of the kingdom of heaven, by healing the servant of this centurion from a distance. Jesus Christ, who has been given this absolute divine authority, shows that he doesn't just come with absolute authority. He is not just one who comes with an authority that can be easily corrupted. No, as we see the scene shift from that point to this, we can see how he comes with an authority that is steeped in compassion, that's intimately joined to compassion. Coming to our text today, we see a woman who is on the complete opposite end of the spectrum now of the centurion, a woman who, as we see, has no power who has no authority, a woman who has lost what little protection she has left. By all accounts, now that she was a widow, it was highly likely that she would end up falling falling between the cracks, even though she was a member of the people of God. By all accounts, after some time passed, she would have eventually been regarded as someone who was virtually a nobody in her society, of very little influence, completely dependent on the needs of others, on the generosity of others. And here we see Jesus coming to her in her time of greatest need. You can see how Jesus comes to people in a way that conveys his message of salvation the most clearly wherever they are at. And it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? For the one who understood authority and who trusted in that structure of authority, who called out to him on the basis of that authority, he came as one who had that authority and he carried out that authority on behalf of the centurion's servant. But for one who is now so far in the depths of grief that she didn't even come to him, she didn't even think of coming to him, we see Christ coming to her. He came to her because she was one of the children of Israel. She was one of the people of God. She was in desperate need of his compassion. He didn't water down his authority in any shape or way. And yet he comes to her with his compassion on display at the foreground here. In Christ, you see the one in whom authority and compassion meet in perfect harmony, the one in whom there is no corruption at all. And you can see this especially highlighted as his compassion meets the effects of sin's curse. And this is the second point. Passion meets sin's curse. When Jesus comes to her, Jesus sees the effects of the brokenness of this world. When he sees her grieving, when he sees her suffering, he sees the effects of sin. And this is the reason why he came 
into the world. Already from the beginning of history, with the very first two human beings, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, you see the effects of sin. This was when sin first entered into the world. God, when he made everything, he had made everything perfect. There was no sin, there was no death, there was no brokenness of relationships. God placed them in the Garden of Eden and gives Adam and Eve one command. You shall not eat of the forbidden tree of the garden or you shall die. And yet, they do take fruit from this tree and they indulged in some. Their action was one of rebellion and of sin against the Most High God. And they surely died. Not all at once in the immediate moment, but their bodies began to die. They began to wear out. And as they aged, eventually they did die. And so death entered into this world. And ever since that time, death has become the ultimate picture of the consequences of sin in this world. This is in what's in Christ's mind as he sees it. The wages of sin is death, we read in Romans 6 verse 23. And here, laying before everybody traveling with Jesus is a clear picture of how these consequences play out. How the brokenness of this world is reflected. The result, a relationship between a mother and son is broken. Not necessarily as a direct result of this woman's sin or this man's sin, but as a result of sin being part and parcel of this world, woven into the very fabric of this fallen world. In this next part, as the Lord sees her and has compassion on her, we see his compassion displayed in a second way. Not only does he draw near to her, and does he speak to her, but he comes near and he touches the open coffin. Verse 14, he touches the open coffin. Now maybe he's coming in here just to get it to stand still. But even in this small gesture, you can see the compassion that he has on this woman who is bound up in her grief. He has compassion on her as she's suffering the effects of this broken world. And his first desire, his first choice is to join her where she's at. And to bring her words of comfort, do not weep, and to join her in her place of sorrow. This is such a great comfort to us right now. While so many in this world are suffering from fear and suffering from sorrow because of not just the virus, COVID-19 right now, but also the fallouts of the virus, the fear of the disease itself that's infecting the rest of the world that comes along with the disease itself. The fear of that fear. 
to recognize Christ coming close to his people, Christ joining them in their hour of need, Christ speaking out in compassion is such a great comfort to us. But then he comes forward and he touches the coffin. Now from our perspective, from a surface level as we look at it, it doesn't seem like such a big deal, reaching out and touching it, right? But there's more to it than just that. You see, in the ancient world, if you touched a corpse, you yourself would become ritually unclean. And there was a reason for this. Again, death was seen to be a picture of the ultimate consequence of sin. And here I want to draw your attention to something with absolute certainty. Sin leads to death. All sin leads to death. And while sin might lie and soothe with the idea of, I don't need Christ in life, this isn't such a big deal. Everything else in life is under my control. While you might think you can afford to put Christ aside in life, you can't afford not to have Christ as you face death. And this is something that should be paramount. It should be at the forefront of all our lives, whether we're dealing with sin personally or if we're coming alongside those who are struggling with sin. There is no sin that's not a big deal. There is no excusing sin because you have the rest of your life under control. Sin infects the rest of your life. Sin spreads and sin leads to death. And this is the picture that's being brought by uncleanness spreading from a corpse to those who are around. Sin infects, sin spreads, sin leads to death. This understanding of the connection between death and sin was the reason that nobody could touch a corpse without becoming unclean. It was a reminder to them that sin harmed people. And the effects of sin go far beyond the individual. It touches families and even whole communities around. And as you see it, you can understand how, how, how plain it is that this connection would be made. As you see this woman weeping and grieving the death of her son, the brokenness of that relationship, it's understandable that that would be a connection that would be made, that sin breaks relationships. This separation would be a concrete picture of the effects of all sin on this world. And for this reason, normally nobody but family and those who are closest would actually touch the body. Nobody else would want to risk becoming, becoming unclean and needing to go through the purifying ceremonies that followed after In fact, there were some teachers, some fellow teachers of Christ in that day that taught that the better thing to do was not just not to touch the body, but they placed limits on how close you could come to the body just to make sure that you didn't come into contact with the body. And, you know, the best thing would be if you found a body on the side of the road, you can think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The best thing would be in order to keep from being unclean, would be to cross to the other side of the road. Putting as much distance between yourself and a body as possible. But not Christ. He deliberately does what only those who were nearest to the deceased person and their family would do. He reaches out and he touches 
the coffin. He reaches out and he joins this woman, taking on himself the picture of the uncleanness that comes with the brokenness, with the sin, and with the death in the world. By his actions, he himself ought to have become ceremonially and ritually unclean. And he did this in compassion, coming to join the woman where she was at, grieving. And then something truly remarkable happens when the Lord of life comes to this man and touches the open coffin. Those who carry the coffin stand still. You can almost imagine a gasp rising up from the crowds around, how someone would deliberately expose himself to uncleanness like this. And then suddenly his voice rings out over the crowd, breaks through the silence. And he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And Christ presented him to his mother. This brings us to our third point. The curse of sin is lifted. Verse 15, so he who was dead sat up and began to speak. He who was dead. The Greek word that's here takes away all doubt. It said he who was a corpse got up and began to speak. Nobody questioned that fact. He who is dead rose up in answer to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. A picture of what Jesus Christ would be coming to do. But even more, a picture of what will happen on that final day when all the dead will be raised at the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, instead of the uncleanness transferring from the corpse to Jesus Christ, something amazing happened. The purity, the holiness, the righteousness, and the life that is in Jesus Christ, which washes away all uncleanness and all impurities, touches this man as he speaks. The effects of sin are undone. This man is raised back up to life, and he's presented to his mother. The relationship, broken by the effects of sin, is restored again through Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who did this. His authority reaches even beyond the grave itself. And immediately the crowds know what happened. Verse 16, Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us. And... God has visited his people. Fear rose up among them. There's a recognition, honor, and respect for the immense power and authority of God above that was displayed in this moment. And amazement and joy that he would and did and does exercise this on behalf of his people. And as they're looking at the miracle that just happened, their minds are jumping back to previous similar situations that were found in the Old Testament. Their minds jump back to the great prophets in their history, to Elisha and Elijah, whom we just read about, both of whom had raised people 
from the dead by the power of God, who had displayed God's divine power and authority to be able to turn back even death itself. And you could see this especially clearly because the words that you find there when it says he presented him to his mother, those words are identical to the words that you find describing the young man being presented to his mother with the prophets in times of old. They see him return the son to his mother and see a word-for-word quote taking place before their very eyes. And so they see Jesus Christ at work here and they see him as being given divine power and they praise God. But notice how they phrase it. It says here, a great prophet has risen up among us. Could he be the prophet? Also spoken of in the Gospel of John chapter 1, the one who had been prophesied of long ago, the fulfillment of all God's promises. The one who would also be the Messiah, the Savior of the people. No, they're not willing to go that far yet. But they are willing to say, a great prophet, One similar to Elijah and Elisha, these great Old Testament characters. They confirm their recognition of his divine power that they are already beginning to witness here at the beginning of his ministry, saying God has visited his people. This is God who is at work. As the Gospel of Luke carries on, it becomes more and more clear to the people to the followers of Jesus, who he is. But at this point in time, it's something that's still unfolding before their eyes. Indeed, God had come to visit his people, but in a much greater way than they could imagine. Christ has come, God in the flesh. Emmanuel, which is to say God with us, He has come showing his authority, showing his right, showing his mercy. He has come to raise us from death and to restore us to life. And as those who are looking at it from the point of view of history, this is something that we shouldn't miss. Not to get so wrapped up in the miracle that we miss this. As we see how Christ came into this world, it's true we should recognize how Christ comes as one who has authority and who has compassion. We should recognize him as one who shows grace to his people and praise him saying, truly, God has visited his people. But we shouldn't get so wrapped up in the miracle that we miss this final point, that we miss that it is God who has come to visit his people, because this is something that speaks to us through the ages. This is something that has a direct impact on us today. 
our Lord Jesus Christ has come into this world to remove the effects of sin and death, to restore relationships that were broken by sin. He has come to bring glory to the name of the Father, to bring glory to God through his work on this earth. This is more than just a story for us. This is more than just an interesting anecdote. This is something that has power for us. Here we're talking about the National Day of Prayer and we're talking about humbling ourselves before God and we're talking about recognizing our own sin as individuals and our own sin as a nation. But we should never lose sight of the power of God as expressed through the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. That the effects of sin in him are rolled back. And yes, it's true. We might still suffer the effects of sin in part in this world. It's true. And it might be that may God graciously prevent it. We see some of the effects here in our own community as well as the virus continues to spread. But in Christ, we can have the confidence and we can have the comfort of knowing that he is the one who rolls back the effects of sin, even death itself. And as we look towards that final day, we can look with assurance knowing that he is God, that he is the one who will speak, that he is the one who will raise his people and bring them to himself. This is our Lord who has both authority and compassion. Amen.